You are in for a treat today. We have a very special guest speaker today for a one-off series called Ben uh, Carson. I got a chance to hear him talk about two years ago about his work as, like you saw in an opening clip, uh, as a card counter and developing a card counting team and what he learned about money, himself, and God as a blackjack player. Now, growing up, we loved playing cards. We played canasta. We played cribbage. We played a lot of poker. I'm a magician, so we did a lot of magic. I started doing magic when I was probably in sixth grade and moved up to stage magic. I'm always amazed that people love watching magic and they'll say, boy, look how lucky you got, or I wish I could get, get luckier. And the idea that this game of luck could teach us lessons of faith is pretty intriguing. And the talk I heard from Ben was just so out of the box. I thought, well, I think more people need to wrestle with this very unusual story of how a card counter who was a Christian, actually with a team of Christians, learned a lot about God money at the blackjack table. But I thought before we continue on uh, speaking of luck, there's a lot of folks who are praying for luck even now, as many of us are thinking, even the next couple hours, what's happening with uh, Hurricane Irvin, Irma, in what it's happening on the both west or possibly east coast of Florida. So let's take a moment and pray for them and pray for, it won't be just be luck, but there'll be some divine intervention to help protect them during this time. Then we'll continue on with the service. Father, we just thank you that, God, you love people. And God, we're just concerned on behalf of our, our fellow um, friends, our fellow family members, our fellow human beings, that many are in harm's way. So, Father, we would ask that you put uh, protection upon them, give wisdom to the local authorities, the state authorities, the the national authorities, Father, to uh, wisely uh, bring people together and to keep people safe. We ask for those who are still recovering from from Houston, Father, that you would would give wisdom to that team as well, Father. We just pray that it won't just be luck, but there will be divine intervention in protecting lives here in the next few hours and the next few days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you saw that opening clip, that is uh, from Kevin Spacey's movie 21, where he develops a team from MIT of card counters. But Ben Carson did this literally, and they actually did a documentary on his life. And because all the people on his team were people of faith or Christians, they called the documentary Holy Rollers. And so I'd like you to see a clip of that before we give a warm horizon welcome to Ben to join us on stage. So let's watch this clip and then Ben will come up. Feel free to give him a clap as he comes up. Let's watch Holy Rollers and how faith and luck come together. I was really excited when I heard about a blackjack team of all Christians. Oh, like, that's ridiculous. I play on a blackjack team, most of you know. One thing that makes our team very different is that we're almost entirely made up of Christians. It doesn't seem like one of the most noble things a person could do in the world, but at least we can liberate the money from the clutches of those who would use it for ill purposes. (laughs) I mean, that's a start. far in the left field to think that someone would be a professional blackjack player, let alone have a whole team. And the fact that everyone we knew was in ministry of some sort was just awesome. I knew that there were good, godly people who cared about Jesus and cared about integrity and cared about me. That's one of the main reasons that I joined. Every time that I'd go into a casino, I would pray, like, God, bless me, you know. Those two things going together never gets old. I'm going to baptize someone and then give Campbell. Poetic justice. When we walk in a casino, 
pretty much everyone stops and watches us play. We're dealing with betting hands and winning and losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. I love it that there's $111,000 in here, a bunch of sands. Every once in a while, you'll get people that are taking extra pride in their job at finding out that you're a card counter. Yeah, he's going to get backed off tonight. I've seen enough. They'll spread into back room you. They'll try to intimidate you. Every other casino, they're going to try to find you. They're going to get you too. It's the nature of our business. We got the money. If you got the money, somebody's going to try to take it. I think they've been the most creative team. The change of appearance and the extra effort as far as the kind of theatrics, I think that's a been exclusive trait, so. So I love the idea of the camouflage and, you know, kind of how you're doing something that seemed wrong. Like that makes people reassess what Christianity is, and in a good way. We want to live in the grid. Because in the grave, you've got to question who you are and what you're doing. Anyone who seriously wants to be a disciple of Jesus should learn blackjack. God knows all of my needs. And he knows exactly what order the cards are in the shoe. So can we give a warm horizon welcome to Ben Crawford? Ben, thanks for being here today. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's, it's a trip seeing that uh, documentary. Having a documentary made by your life is like having someone take your diary and turn it into a movie from like 10 years ago. Um, so talking about money is hard. And I think it's especially hard uh, in a church because in my experience growing up in church, all the talks about money were just, at the end, they just ask you to give more of it. But we're going to try and do something a little different today because that's not really uh, what I do. And my message today is very simply that God doesn't want your money. He wants you. And my challenge is actually to make this come across as the good news that I believe it is and not the bad news that I used to hear when I heard that message growing up. So uh, this picture that you guys saw in that little clip they showed of my disguises, that was uh, what a little bit of my, look lo- my life looked like starting about 10 years ago. These are some of the disguises I wore. And the biggest question people ask about blackjack or counting cards is, is it legal? So just to get that out of the way, it was 100% legal, but it was frowned upon, which explains most of my life since first grade. Uh, So these are some of the disguises that we wore to avoid getting kicked out of casinos, sometimes multiple times, uh, and that's just like one snapshot of how seriously we took this. Uh, I'm going to share my story today in in really three parts uh, in the hopes that you guys would be able to identify with certain parts of it. It's really just what my life looked like growing up before Blackjack, how Blackjack changed me, and what my life looks like now. So to start off with... I was a pretty extreme kid growing up. I did everything 110%. Um, I got straight A's in school. And I really started to become fascinated with Jesus early on because he seemed like a really extreme guy. Uh, He was the only person that I heard of that really up front asked for all of you. And that was really appealing to me. And it was really natural that this ask, that this request of his, started with my pocketbook. It started with money. I grew up in Southern California, uh, and it wasn't uncommon to pull up to an intersection where there's, you're surrounded by BMWs and Mercedes. 
And it was in Orange County, this very affluent area, that I started to see uh, this spectrum that existed about how you find your self-worth and how you value people. You guys might recognize this, but let's, let's picture this podium. This is like kind of where you start off where this is normal people. And the more you head this way, this is like up, the more expensive your purses, your jeans, your houses, your cars, your vacations get. To a point where like at the very end might be Bill Gates. That's, that's like the, the chief. And this process called life is actually very simple. It's all about heading this way. So it's easy to know where you're at because you can kind of look up and you can see who has more than you. And you can also look down and you can see who has less with you. And, and in that way, you can kind of find your way in this world. So the life goal was very, very simple. It was to move that way. You know, as long as you're moving, you're progressing. In fact, I knew a friend who, when he was eight years old, he said that he counted all of his pennies. And he said from that day forward, every day past that, he never had less money than the day before. That's moving that way. What I heard about the Bible and church seemed like it was the opposite of that. So this type of materialism seemed like it was really far from God, so I rejected it. So I had different heroes. I don't know if you guys have heard of Keith Green or Rich Mullins or some of these Christian musicians. These guys were radicals. They had taken vows of poverty. I mean, there's stories of Keith Green. He was, like, against charging any money for his albums, so he'd give them away for free. Or Rich Mullins, he was, like, you know, on the top of the music charts. But instead of making a lot of money, he took, like, the base poverty salary and then gave the rest of his church and said, here, you deal with that. So I was like, these were the guys that were impressive to me. So instead of vacations, uh, I dedicated myself to going on mission trips to Mexico. That's what I did every year. Uh, And instead of expensive jeans, I thought about how this money could be spent feeding African orphans. I don't know if you guys saw those commercials back then. It was always like, you know, 30 bucks will feed an orphan and give them education for two months. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's those type of statistics and finances are amazing. And so I, I was constantly plagued with seeing the world in that type of way. So I did something a little bit different, at least from what I saw at that time. Instead of going this way, I set my sights on going this way, running as far from this as I could. Instead of acquiring more, my goal was really to give up as much as possible so that I could feed these African children and at the end really make God happy. So if you picture this spectrum, at the end of it, instead of Bill Gates, you have Mother Teresa down there. That's, that's what this felt like to me. So what did this look like for my life? Well, for my life, uh, while my friends left this kind of prestigious area of Southern California to go on to become doctors and lawyers and go to business school, I decided to go to Bible college. Um, I went there to, uh, eventually I adopted this goal to, to go to full-time ministry, which was kind of a more elite step down this spectrum because, you know, pastors, they don't make money and they drive crappy cars. Uh, but then at Bible college, I learned about this other more select group of people that was even further down. These guys were called missionaries. So they went to other countries, lived in the dirt. They put their comfort on the line, even their physical safety, all because they cared so little about material things, and they were trying so hard to make God happy that it just kept going further and further and further down the line. So eventually, things got a little more complicated. I got married right after my one year of Bible college when I was uh, 20. Um, But I was still committed, and and when I I got engaged, I tried to talk my wife out of it because I said, you know what? This, this route, this is going to be a hard route. Like, you don't want it. But I, it didn't work. I couldn't talk her out of it. So that's how we knew. Um, and we didn't register for any gifts 
because, you know, I thought the more stuff you get, the more it's going to threaten this direction I'm heading, and the more it puts me on this path of being one of those people that just wants to get a bunch of stuff. And in fact, the first three years of our marriage, we didn't even have a mattress. We slept on the ground because, once again, I'm just like, I'm training to go down this way. You know, I don't want to have any comfort. I just want to be able to give everything to God. So I want to ask you guys this question, if, just to pause for a second. If we were to put Mother Teresa down there on the negative 10 side and Bill Gates on the positive 10, I want you to just think for 20 seconds, what number, where would you place yourself on the spectrum? And it, it might be, you might have more than one number for different traits of your personality, but I just want, I want you to think about that, and then I want you to tell a family or friend or neighbor, if you feel comfortable with that, someone that's sitting next to you, just where, where do you put yourself on that? Most Christians uh, find themselves around here somewhere because they feel guilty for having too much. They don't want to have that much. And they're also kind of crappy at business because they feel guilty charging full price for anything. So they never get that affluent, but they hover somewhere around here. <clears throat> uh, but I want you to think about that number of where you're at. and Maybe it'll help you as we uh, progress through my story. So then something happened to me. This is the second part of the story. This is the blackjack part that we saw. This is the... You know, and the documentary does a pretty glorious job of showing a lot of dollars and things like that. But um, in 2001, I was married, and my wife was going to nursing school, and the thought was, well, she'll go to nursing school, and I'll pay for that, and then I'll go to med school so that we can take these gifts and have no money and go live in the dirt in Africa. (laughs) Uh, That was the goal at this time. Uh, And I picked up a book on how to beat the game of blackjack, By the way, this is, like, not a recommendation to do this at all uh, for anyone. Uh, I think my kids are back here, and they know my thoughts on this. Um, But what happened was really fascinating, because while I had rejected business, you know, business seemed like it was on this side of the spectrum, so I decided I don't want to use my brain that way. The idea of playing a card game that was just, it was just a game, it was just math, actually seemed like, I was able to justify that, and it seemed okay and fun, I mean, it did involve money, but I wasn't doing it. I didn't quit my job to do this for a living or anything at first. That wasn't my goal. So I was like, oh, what could be wrong with a mathematical card game? So to go any further, I have to pause for a second and just explain the math behind blackjack for a second. Because I showed it a little bit up there. It's, it's actually very simple. Uh, most people don't realize. It's, it's just you're adding and subtracting the number one a bunch from a deck. And it doesn't require a whole ton of memory, but it does require a lot of practice. We used to train our players for about 80 hours of practice. But it's all math. Unlike this gambler song, it's not about knowing when to hold them, knowing when to fold them. There's no ego. Uh, there's no bravado like poker. It's, you're just like a, a computer. You input data and you output decisions. And it's, it's actually kind of funny because the math doesn't know the difference from the types of chips that are on the table. You could be playing with red chips, and, and red chips in a casino are $5, or you could be playing with brown chips, which are $5,000, and the decision, the math, is just always the same. It's very clean and simple like that. So the other thing about it is that it's not, actually not gambling uh, in the strictest sense because it's all about this mathematical certainty of what you expect in the long run. In fact, I don't know if you guys have heard of this uh, satirical newspaper called The Onion, uh, a number of years ago, they ran a headline that said, Casino has winning night. <laughs> Which was like, okay, that's like not, <laughs> uh, 
That happens every night. In fact, it's, it's not lucky when the casino wins every night. And in a way, we just reversed the roles and we became the casino. So in this system, it's really fascinating because it doesn't matter if you win or lose on any given night. You don't beat yourself up over the hand or the decision. You just play the system and in the long run, you win. It's all about how you play the game. All that was simple enough, but what I didn't really know what to expect was these places where we play this game, which were casinos. Now, I had casinos up in that category with, like, there's strip clubs and there's casinos and this, like, churches on this side and those places are on this side, and those are just places you generally avoid. So when I went into these places, it was, it was actually quite a shocking uh, education for me. I remember the first time I sat down, I watched this older lady. She was sitting next to me, and she was buying in $20 at a time. And she lost $20. And then she lost another $20. And at the end of it all, she had lost like 200 bucks in like 30 minutes. And she seemed, I mean, I, I felt like she was spending her kids like Christmas money. Uh, and I was actually like really devastated for her. <laughs> because I was equating this $200 to how many meals could be bought in Africa. I mean, that was how I did all my math. But I started to ask a different question about her. And I asked this question, what if she would have went to the mall and spent 200 bucks? Was that, like, better or worse? Or what if she went to a ski slope and spent this $200? Was that, like, what was it about the casino that made it so bad? And the first time I went to Vegas, uh, that was a shock. I remember sitting at this table, and we were playing at this high roller table, and this, this guy was sitting next to me, and a cocktail waitress bought him, brought him this glass of red wine, and he tipped her 500 bucks, One purple chip. I mean, it's like I said, it feels the exact same as a red chip. And I, I couldn't believe this. I mean, I, I'm the type of person, I was dying a thousand deaths to decide whether to round up 50 cents on a tip, because that goes over 15%, and I could still probably get away with doing less, but, you know, to make it an even number. So I'm, like, sitting and making these decisions for minutes, and this guy just, like, 500 bucks was gone just like that. I, like, my whole world got turned upside down. And then blackjack, the, the financial swings were absolutely crazy. So you saw some pictures of just the stacks of cash that we dealt with. I got a phone call once from a player in Wisconsin that said he was last, down to his last $10,000. Um, he had lost something like eighty. dollars I, I didn't hear from him for two days. We're like, okay, well, there goes that money. Uh, 48 hours later, I get a call after he woke up from sleeping in his car uh, telling me that he had won the 80 and won another 90 and now had $210,000 and was driving back to Cincinnati. Those types of swings were not uncommon. Okay, $10,000 could come and go in uh, 10 minutes or an hour, very simply. And as I started to make this type of money and see this type of money come and go and my bank account started to move up and up, I started to ask myself, how am I different from the people on that side of the spectrum? Am I still? I mean, those guys, I still had, you know crappy jeans at this point. <laughs> so I could justify it, but my answer would come soon enough, uh, and people always ask me what my biggest win is in blackjack. And honestly, I, I don't even remember. I can't tell you that story. I don't, I don't know the answer to it, but I can tell you about my biggest loss. And my biggest loss happened at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. They showed the felt up on that uh, Kevin Spacey clip for like one second. It gave me flashbacks. Uh, and what happened was I, was I was playing at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, and back then we wore clothes based upon how many pockets it had because transportation of cash was like, and security of cash was the most important thing to us. And after an hour and a half of playing, I reached 
for all my pockets, and there was no more uh, 10 straps, uh, packets of $10,000 that we carried around. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just lost $86,000 in an hour and a half. I was out of money. And the casino comes up to me, and they say, Mr. Crawford, uh, we really appreciate you being a customer here. Uh, would you like anything from our gift shop? Uh, so I go and I get actually this pair of jeans and I call it my $86,000 pair of jeans, which actually is the most expensive pair of jeans I've ever heard of on the planet. But I'm wrestling (laughs) now with where the heck am I on this spectrum? And the old me was saying things about this loss, like you made a mistake. Those, that could have fed probably literally a million orphans. You don't care about God enough. He's upset with you. You see, because I had tried so hard to not have too much. But on the other side, I had learned enough about blackjack uh, that the new me was saying, you made all the right decisions. You placed the bets at all the right times. They're just chips. In fact, our blackjack team, we called them betting units. Just keep playing the game. So since then, I've gone back and forth on this spectrum, from the negative 10 Mother Teresa to the positive 10 Bill Gates. And I want to share you guys just a few observations that I've made about this spectrum, being, being on both sides of it. And on, on that side, probably the lowest I've been was me and my wife, my first child. We lived off of $10 a day. That's everything. That's room, boarding, and food. That was like poverty level, that side. And on this side, I've been making a million dollars a year. That's the highest I've been. So somewhere in between there, if you're on the outskirts of either of those, You know, I've explored that far. That's as far as I can speak to. But this is what I've noticed about anything in between there, is that no matter where I was at, I never felt good about where I was. This is why, whether you're on this side and you're looking down at these people, because you're like, well, oh, they're lazy. Oh, they don't, you know, they didn't spend as much on their education. They don't work as hard as I do. They don't have as much as I do. But the same thing happens on this side. And that's where on this side we would look down at people and I would say, oh, you know what? They spent how much on that? They spent that much on a vacation or or that much on a pair of jeans? That's ridiculous. The other thing I noticed was that the goal, wherever I got to where I was, the goal was constantly shifting. Whatever more I thought I wanted on this side, it was never enough. And I learned this hanging out with millionaires. In Seattle, I had a house that was $500,000. This was a dream house. I mean, out in Seattle, that doesn't buy you as much house as it buys you here. But, you know, this was the house I was totally happy with. And then I started hanging out with millionaires. These guys had $5 million houses on the lake, like bare minimum. So now I'm asking, if I'm going to invite these people over, how am I going to entertain and love and reach out to them? And I saw that them and their friends, you know, that it never, ever ends. And the same thing is true on this side. In fact, I mean, it it sounds ridiculous to talk about, but it is so true. Uh, On this ministry side, I would get my jeans at Costco. Okay, they're 20 bucks, lifetime warranty. Best pair of jeans you could buy. But then I would see these other people, these like ministry guys, and they're like, well, I got my jeans at the thrift store. I'm like, oh, crap, should I be buying my jeans at the thrift store? Like, you know, because if I spent 10 bucks, I could send more money to Africa. So, you know, I, I tried that out. And then you talk to missionaries and they're like, well, I get my jeans for free. They're donated. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can tell by how they look. But that's always the scenario. No matter where you get, you're always going to see someone further down from you on either side. And in that way, both sides of the spectrum are very the same. But this is the final thing they have in common that I noticed. And it's the most important thing. 
which is that no matter which way you're heading, the worst thing that you could ever do is to make a mistake and to go backwards. On this side, it's a financial mistake, you know, making a bad investment, having your net worth uh, disappear overnight, these type of things. These are the things that make your heart beat fast. These are the things that make you feel really bad. They make you feel like crap. But on the, on the flip side, the same is also true. And, and in my experience, I don't know which is worse, but on this side, I was always worried about making a mistake on, on spending too much on myself, you know, on, on making God angry at me for, for not making the right decision. And the answer, the reason why that was that way was because I always thought that God wanted more from me. Around this time, I, I really thought a lot about this verse. I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase in the Bible, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, the fact of the matter is, when you read the Bible, you see riches move very quickly. I mean, natural disasters, miracles, famines, wars. Like, God doesn't have a problem, like, changing things just like that. And while I acknowledge that that was true, my lifestyle revealed that I didn't think it was real. And I can see with our culture, the amount of uh, energy that we put into education and income, and even the way we introduce ourselves— they show us what we really believe about how we're going to advance in this world. You know, that's where we really see what we believe. So this put me at a huge crossroads in my life, uh, this whole gambling thing. And at the peak of it, I was hanging out with these guys that you saw with this Kevin Spacey film, these, the MIT guys that the film is based upon. So I, I'm getting more and more respected in this community, and, and the way I talk and the way I spend makes sense to them. But back home, the people at the church, I, I couldn't relate to how they were talking about money. But I started to ask this question. I wonder if God sees money more the way I'm starting to see it with actually starting to disrespect the quantities and just asking the question, how am I playing the game? You guys probably have heard this story of, uh, it's, it's in the Bible of these people are sitting at the temple with Jesus and there's these rich people and they come and they're dumping money you know, into the offering plate thing. And everyone's paying attention. So they're like, that's exciting. And people don't really notice out in the corner, uh, an older lady comes up and she puts one small coin of the lowest denomination in the coin. But you know who noticed was Jesus. And the reason why he noticed was because he was obsessed with what he saw in her heart. And the widow did something that was far more powerful than giving a lot of money she gave all of herself. And what I noticed about this spectrum is that it's all about more. More, more, more to get this way. More, more, more to get this way. The worst thing that can happen is you step back and you get less. But it's always about more. And the interesting thing about Jesus is that he never asked for more. In fact, sometimes the more you give, the more distracting it is. Uh, there's these passages in like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they're actually kind of all over the place. Uh, but it, Jesus is like mocking his people for how much they're sacrificing. He says, do you think I want more cattle? Do you think I want more bloodshed? Like, is that what you really think I want? I just want your hearts. So what I've learned is that Jesus doesn't want more of you on either side of the spectrum. He actually wants you to step off the spectrum altogether, to see that it's not even real. And that neither side will deliver the comfort or the value that it promises. Now we're going to talk about how. We have 10 minutes left. Okay, so I'm going to share with you guys what this has looked like for me. Because this is actually the most exciting part. 
Um, but for me, I need to start with why. Why do we step off the spectrum? Well, this isn't just sacrifice, you guys. I don't really think this needs to be a scary thing. I mean, for me, growing up in church, the, the call for more, was that was always scary. It's like, okay, what next? Is it my music? Is it my car? Is it my comfort? Is it, is it this? And that was a really scary thing. And the reason why I don't think it's about that is because it's actually about not just what we give, but it's what we get. And the biggest cost of the spectrum for me is that my obsession with quantities on either side of it was preventing me from being able to see God's heart for me. So it's not about how much you give when you step off the spectrum, but it's about who you're putting your faith in. And on the spectrum, either side of it, you're putting your faith in either a quantity, but at the end of the day, you're really putting your faith in yourself. Your ability to move down this, and maybe you even ask God to bless your, you know, whatever it is, your business, or your lifestyle, or your work to get here. But at the end of the day, your worth comes from going here and being here. And on this side, it was the same thing. My worth came from where I was and where I was going and how far I had gotten. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's actually saying, stop finding your identity in either side of the spectrum. Either the good things that you've done or the bad things that you've done or the the things that you've accumulated or the things that you've avoided. And he says, find your identity and your worth in my work, the work that I've done. Which the claim of the Bible is that he's the only person to have ever done perfect work. That's what's so crazy. So instead of being obsessed about what I've accumulated or avoided, we can be obsessed with what Jesus has accumulated and the inheritance that he says he's going to share with his sons and daughters. So I said in the beginning, God doesn't want more money. He wants more of you. Well, the question that any decent lover should ask is, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want me? I mean, this is in the courting or dating period. This is where we're saying, like, how far are you willing to drive? How late are you willing to stay up? How many letters are you willing to write? How long are you willing to wait for me? This is what we're all wondering. Well, there's an economic principle uh, that says something is worth whatever you're willing to pay for it. And what I love about God is that he follows his own rules and he follows his own principles that he creates. And this is why the story of the crucifixion is the cornerstone for the Christian faith. Because it's actually at the crucifixion we see what God was willing to pay for us. And it's really a crazy controversial story because what he says in that story is that we are worth his son. We are worth the, the life of God to him. And what that means about what I've experienced on the spectrum is that his identity for us is far more valuable than anything I could have imagined on either side. And I I picture maybe achieving the status of Bill Gates, who I hear has been replaced by Jeff Bezos, or Mother Teresa, and that is nothing compared to being called a son of God. Two years ago, I was uh, driving through Nicaragua with my daughter Eden for her 13th birthday, and we were lost like rental car smashing on dirt roads, scraping on the bottom with no GPS, sun going down, bonfires in people's yards, lost. And I look over at her because I'm like kind of in a panic because no one speaks English where we're driving. I don't know how we got to where we were. But she's not worried. And I was like, that's weird because I was like, 
I was dying on the inside. But I knew why. It was because in her mind, she was with her dad. And that was enough for her. And when you step off the spectrum of focusing on how much you have or where you are on it, you can start to focus on who you actually belong to and whose care you're under. And let me tell you guys, according to the Bible, God loves, loves, loves to care for his people. There's a little bit of fine print here, which is that you can't really do both at the same time. There's kind of a lesser-known story in the Bible about David, and uh, one of the worst things that he actually did was uh, he was preparing for this war, and he counted his troops. And God got angry, and it seems like kind of a weird story because David didn't even, like, really do anything. Like, he didn't kill anyone, he didn't sleep with anyone, he didn't, like, steal anything. He just counted his troops. But the reason why this was such a big deal to God, because David was stepping back into finding his identity based on how much he had, instead of who was taking care of him. There's another story. Uh, I mean, it's so much fun when you approach the Bible and just look at numbers from this perspective of Gideon, who had 30,000 troops, and he was going against this army of 15,000, and God said, that's too many troops. I don't want you to have that many. So he asked him to get rid of some, and he got rid of more, and finally he's down to 300. And it's such a fascinating thing. God wasn't against troops, but what God saw was that these numbers were actually distracting to the message he wanted to send his people, which isn't that the technology is awesome. It's not that, you know, power is better, but it's actually about how much he cared for his people. And what he wanted the people to ask is, am I safe? And he wanted the answer to be, yes, I am. But not because I have troops, but because... I'm with dad. What I've noticed is that as our viewpoint of money changes, um, or sorry, as our viewpoint of God changes, it actually changes our viewpoint of money. And money stops having this power and value that we attach to it. The final story I'm going to share is about our family and uh, what rest looks like for me, having stepped off the spectrum a bit. And this has to do with Shabbat, or resting on the seventh day, or Sabbath rest. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. And we ask our kids every uh, Friday, most Fridays, uh, why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? I mean, this is like after he created the world, right? So it's like, God, it it doesn't make sense in a way. But the answer is in the text. It comes back to what he says about the previous six days. He says he looked back and he said, it is good. And another way of translating that is, It is good enough. We tell them he could have made flying dolphins on the seventh day, but he didn't. Um, Now, with my life, what I realize I'm able to do, now that I'm finding my identity and who God is and not what I'm doing, is come Friday, no matter how much email is in my inbox, no matter what my investments have done that week, no matter how good or bad of a dad I've been or how much I've accomplished in relationships, or on this side, you know, no matter how much I've sacrificed or how many times... I've not called my friends back or done the right thing. Speaking the gospel to each other means looking at each other and speaking about our week and saying, it is good enough, period, right now. And I believe that that's the most controversial thing we can say about each other. That is speaking the gospel. That means it's actually okay to make mistakes. Remember I said the worst thing that can happen is you go backwards in one of these. I can have a bad week. I can lose most or all my net worth. And in God's eyes... I'm the same. 
so I want to end this by speaking to you guys about what this might mean for you. This is what I believe the gospel means. Some of you right now are identifying as having too little money right now. You're not able to accomplish your goals. You're not as far as you thought your dad wanted you to be or as you thought you would be at this certain age or, or maybe you, you're not meeting your goals. But for those of you that identify that way, you can celebrate in being valuable and having full access to the power of God as much as the richest person on the planet right now. And for those of you who feel like you have a lot of money, this is actually a whole nether burden that I'm familiar with. You can celebrate not being able to lose your status in his kingdom like you can lose your wealth. Your inheritance in the kingdom of God is stable and eternal. And to everyone, what's exciting to me about what this does for our viewpoint of money is this type of freedom affords us the ability to see money in a whole different way I think the way it was intended. And I I really think this can be fun, you guys. Because this is an extension of our heart. And we have the privilege to look around this world and to partner with our dad and to see where he's working and to be a blessing to others because of how much he's given us. So, I want to thank you guys for letting me share my story. And I hope that this gives you guys another perspective on money and hopefully a different way to get more freedom. You know, it, it's interesting that song by Sting is one of my favorites. It actually re- references the idea in the Bible that God has placed eternity in our heart. And there's this eternal hole in our heart that we try and fill with a number, which is kind of crazy. I remember I was talking with Ben. By the way, it's Crawford, not Carson. Sorry, I butchered name there early on. Um, I was talking to Ben uh, backstage, and uh, it reminded me, as he was talking, back when my, my book came out several years ago, you know, the number was everything. The number of books to get you on a New York bestseller, the number of books for this to go big, you know, the number of national television shows I was doing and how I had it all lined up. And now, you know, a couple years later, nobody cares. Most people don't even know I wrote a book. Kids still call me dad. Um, <laughs> wife still, you know, calls me husband. Um, and he said, by the way, if anybody wants any, I got a whole bunch of these uh, DVDs of Holy Rollers sitting around, which remind me, yeah, that number of books that was so important is now like on some back uh, shelf somewhere in the building where people occasionally will buy them. So if you're interested in his story, we're not selling these or anything. Uh, he does have several of the $90,000 pairs of jeans available uh, that if you're interested in. But <clears throat> I'll just have a couple of these up front. So if you just want a copy of his story, if you're more interested in uh, and watching it on YouTube, feel free to grab that. Otherwise, thanks for being here today. We've got a brand new series starts next week. It's four weeks long called Choose Wisely. We're going to give you a matrix from the Bible of sort of principles to use as you come face-to-face with decisions uh, in your business, in your family, in your career. So thanks for being here today. I hope you get a lot to think about and you're thinking about money and maybe blackjack in a whole new way. Thanks again.